trying to extract signal from the noise. That's been the challenge. The world's gotten so noisy, you just got to get better at figuring out, you know, which data sources are more valid and which data sources are more trusted. Welcome to the Thriving on Overload podcast. I am Ross Dawson, a futurist and entrepreneur fascinated by how we can excel at dealing with the universe of information and the author of the book, Thriving on Overload. Every week, we share insights from information masters on how they transform today's avalanche of information into insight, foresight, and better decisions. For more goodness on this topic, be sure to visit thrivingonoverload.com, where there are a wealth of resources to help you thrive, including all podcast episodes with transcripts, excerpts from my book, and if you are really intent on amplifying your information productivity, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, which helps you develop a personal information plan you can immediately put into practice. And be sure to sign up for our weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter if you want to optimize your information productivity. If you enjoy this episode, please do subscribe and give a rating or review on iTunes. It helps others interested in this topic to find these resources. Now, on with the show. On this episode, we learn from Ah Ray Wong, the founder and chairman of highly regarded tech analyst firm Constellation Research. He is author of Disrupting Digital Business and most recently, Everybody Wants to Rule the World on the Future of Business. Ray co-hosts the prominent enterprise tech and leadership webcast Disrupt TV and frequently appears in major media such as Wall Street Journal, CNBC, Bloomberg and many others. You can find Ray's blog at RayWong.org, R-A-Y-W-A-N-G, and he has a fabulous Twitter stream at R-W-A-N-G-0. In this episode, you will learn from Ray about constant curation, choosing channels, learning from private networks, finding temporal patterns, seeing the impact of trends, and far more. Keep listening to learn from Ray's great insights. Ray, it's awesome to have you on the show. Ross, it's been way too long. I have not had a chance to get down to Oz. I'd love to, but uh, hey, thanks for having me here. So you are a prime example of someone who thrives on an enormous amount of information, making sense of, uh, amongst other things, many other things, the the edge of enterprise tech and uh, where everything is all going. So how do you keep on top of uh, massive information? You know what it is? It's constant streams of information. Like you were constantly looking for data points, but what we've gotten really good at is building ontologies, building filters, building ways of framing. And, and I think that has helped uh, be able to handle that type of information overload. I mean, every piece of information that comes to me has a purpose, has a time, has a level of urgency, uh, and I categorize everything that way when it comes in. So, so if I get an email and says, hey, you know, let's catch up later this week, Again, yeah, I'll probably look at that like three days later from now. But if it's something that's urgent, deal, let's go. Okay, that's something I'll take on right away. Um, if I'm reading something about a futuristic trend that's happening, like, you know, space transportation, I'll follow it away saying, hey, this is going to be related to this other kind of research I'm looking. And so it's constant filing, constant curation, and constantly a sense of understanding time and urgency. So there's so, so much to dig into in what you've uh, said already. But part of it is uh, the distinction between the push and the pull. As you get a whole bunch of stuff which is pushed to you, and yes. you've got to set up your filters to be able to assess that. And the other is the pull, as to go, all right, we'll go out and find the things which haven't landed in your inbox. So why don't we start with sort of the, the push? How do you filter things which come into you? And you've said you've got you know various ways of 
uh, I suppose, assessing those as they come in? I mean, is that all in your in email or through social filters or what, what, what are your incoming channels? It's crazy. There's so many channels, Ross. I mean, um, email is still primary for me. Um, the social networks, right, whether you're on Twitter or whether you're on LinkedIn, those are big feed, feeder sources as well. Um, and then it's all the private chat groups I'm in right now. I'm in a lot of private chat groups, whether they're on Signal, whether they're on, you know, um, you know, WeChat, whether they're on like other kind of even private social networks that are going on. I, I think it's those signals that are actually uh, proliferating more than anything else. The public social networks are definitely dying. The private networks are actually growing and it's it's uh, much higher quality information. So that that's coming from the, uh, you know, the uh, pulse, the the push side. The pull side's a little bit different. I think the pull side is if you know what you're asking for, you know what to curate, it's I think so easy to be able to like set up the meetings or set up the conversations. Uh, but what you're missing is that level of serendipity, which you used to get uh, when you can move around, right? You know, bump into someone at a conference, uh, bump into someone like on the yeah. way to a conference, you know, have that conversation, you know, after someone's spoken. Uh, that I'm missing. And uh, that's been a big piece for the last 18 months that has really, I think, hampered my ability to get the signals faster. So in those private channels how do you how do you get into the the right groups what are the what are the things you're finding there you're not finding in other places honestly I, I think it's authenticity, like honest conversations, uh, the ability to um, have go deeper uh, with someone about something uh, the um, the level of context around a problem, understanding where an exception is occurring. I think I get a lot more fidelity out of those private conversations or the, the social networks that are more aligned. You know, they might be affinity based on, you know, places you've worked. They might be, you know, roles or job titles. They might be a topic that people are interested in. They might even be geographic, right? But I, I think those are playing a much bigger role than they were uh, about five years ago. So not so much on the public social networks anymore? I mean, there's signals there, but it's so noisy that, you know, sometimes it's not worth the time. Coming back to the pool. So, all right, what, what, how do you go out and you find the, uh, what's relevant in, a, <laughs> in that sea of information every day? Well, for me, I spent a lot of time talking about business transformation, looking at where the trends are headed, looking at technologies, understanding policy, right? And so for, for that pull, right, I mean, it's it's really your network, right? I mean, so the bigger your network, the more likely you can find someone within that network or at least a couple degrees of separation. Um, pull for me, like, let's say we were talking about a topic like, hey, what's going to happen with like space transportation, space tourism, or, you know, let's, let's figure out what's happening with the future of transit, like autonomous vehicles. Um, I probably about 40, 50 people I could reach out to and have that conversation with, right? And I'd set up a meeting. I'd say, hey, let's catch up. You know, what are you, what are you seeing? What's going on? Um, ideally, what would happen is we'd all be part of some similar type of private networks where someone would just ping and, and you get a conversation or return back, kind of like the old listservs, right? That's actually what it's like in these private networks today. Like people just add you to a network or they add you to a group. Uh, for example, we just had a healthcare summit. We had 40 top CIOs participate. You know, we just set up a Discord server, right? That's as simple as that and you're done. Right. So in this case, it's out knowing who the right person to reach out to is. And they're the ones that be able to point you in the right sources, be able to make sense of that. And so, of course, this is based on some kind of reciprocity. There's some reason why they'll agree to take your call. 
So this is part of that building those people networks. Commonwealth of self-interest is popping up there somewhere. <laughs> so what, describe, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean, it's in everyone's best interest, right? In case you have a question or you want to know something, right? Or, you know, like, you know, whether it's a job hunt or whether it's a tip or whether something's coming your way, right? I mean, there's, there's enough self-interest for you to be want to be part of one of those groups. So, so the value exchange is there. Yeah, yeah. So people building this ex- networks of reciprocity. Or, exactly, exactly. Or latent, latent reciprocity in any case. Well, you know, you're paying it forward at some point. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> so. totally. So one of the things you said just at the outset was around uh, ontologies and framing. And that's obviously, you know, when I build my visual frameworks, that's a lot of what I'm trying to do is to build some structure. So how do you, how do you go about that? What's the process for being able to either build these frameworks or to how do you apply that when you're getting, you know, seeing new information? Yeah, you know what? For me, it's always been visual, right? I mean, I've got post-it pads everywhere, right? And, and it's really about you know finding patterns, right? Is it is, is it groupings that are the same? Is it groupings that are different? Is it groupings that have a specific you know context? Is it and and so I think I just do that mentally, um, and then when you lay things out to see how they fit, uh, that's where you start applying you know other types of models on top. You know, for example, what, what are the political implications? Okay, uh, what are the environmental? What are the technological? What, what's the societal implications? Right? Is there a legislative angle to it? Um, what's the economic impact? Uh, what's the cost-benefit analysis? Right. So all these frameworks over time just start popping in. Uh, let's let's run a SWOT analysis. Right. Like every one of those techniques that that people use um, gets filtered and applied until you find a pattern or you find no pattern. Right. Which is many times the case. Right. Hey, oh, there's no pattern. Okay, great. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I mean, we see more that then we see patterns and then you know but we got to get good at you know finding patterns as well so so do you literally just jot things down on post-it notes and go to whiteboard to move them around whiteboard post-it notes um you know sometimes it's just like doodling drawing entity diagrams i mean all those things help so right and so when you say so in terms of building some of the structures there, and so the types of relationships you might have, so in terms of hierarchical or relationship or causal or time, or are there different sort of types of different relationships that you look for or you tend to see? Yeah, I, I tend to try to understand temporal patterns. I think that's important um, I, because what I'm really looking for are, are there things that are repetitive that I've missed. Um, if things aren't repetitive, I'm trying to find out if there are dependencies uh, that actually create you know relationships again. And if it's truly ad hoc, I want to know why they're ad hoc. Like why are these things completely random? And so that's one line of reasoning. Um, the other way I, I also look at things is also I try to understand an automation angle um, as I'm looking at stuff. So when do you fully intelligent automate something? Do you have enough capability to do that? Or are you still trying to learn? Like when do you augment a machine with a human, right? And and find all the false positives, false negatives, try to figure out why people break rules, why protocols broken, why are there exceptions? And then when can you actually augment the human with the machine to give them more insights and information so they can actually work faster? Or when am I in a situation where it has to be a human touch? Like you can't automate that. It's got to be, you know, 
I mean, a human's got to be in charge. And so that's the other way sometimes I look at some of these angles uh, to understand the impact, right? Because if, if it's fully automated, that means it's digitized, it can scale, which is going to operate very differently. If there's a human involved in this, then we actually have to treat things a little bit differently. So because, you know, not everything's being modeled, plus, you know, humans are random. They don't follow rules. They do whatever they like. No, I'm just kidding. Um, but you get the idea, right? Like we're not predictable, right? As, as predictable yes. as we say, right? And so, you, so those create another kind of nuance that you should be looking at. So, so part of this is, of course, you get a uh, building frameworks in your own mind or frameworks on your whiteboard or uh, visual framework. So this is part of it. Say, okay, your understanding. And then there's the idea, of, particularly for you and your uh, organization is communicating that to others so that they're trying to, they get some sense of this distillation or, or the relationships or the framework which you're creating. So What's that process of taking it from that understanding in your mind through to communicating in ways which not just somebody thinks like you that will get it, but also people who may think in different ways would also get it? Yeah, no, the, the rule that I always use is like, if you can explain it to a third grader, uh, you're, you're in good shape, right? That simplicity, right? The, the relationships, right? The, the ability to understand like the, the causal impacts, like if you can communicate at a third grade level, you're usually doing fine. Um, the trick is communicating at a third grade level and communicating at a, at multiple levels. That's where yes. it gets uh, a little bit, you know, that, that's the art, right? If where you're talking in multiple levels at the same time, and that requires a lot of work, right? You basically have to understand um, how your subtle intonations or any kind of, you know, anything implied, right, carries through the, the context of that conversation about what it means. Um, you really have to go um, and understand that you're communicating at multiple levels and, and not create confusion. So, so that, that's an art. That, that takes a lot of time to actually figure out how to do. So, so what do, I mean, you use visuals, of course, in your presentations and your books and your research and so on. So, I mean, do you, how much do you center that on a visual framework? You know, one of my colleagues does that awesomely, Dion Hinchcliffe, if you remember Dion. And oh my God, his visuals are amazing. Um, I've learned not to do visuals because I'm not at that level of trying to distill something highly complicated into a picture. But what I do try to do is simplify and break down examples so that people can relate to them and not use industry-specific examples. Use something a little bit more generic so everybody can see how it applies to their industry. Mostly because if you get down to industry-specific examples, what typically happens is people who are experts in their industry will tell you, well, that can't possibly happen that way. And so, so that's why I, I simplify things. For example, like, you know, people like to talk about, let's take a complicated conversation about, you know, journeys and APIs and microservices, right? I'll boil it down to a peanut butter jelly sandwich, right? And so I'll explain, hey, you know, this one software vendor's um, APIs and microservices look like a simple peanut butter jelly sandwich. Here's a piece of bread. Here's another piece of bread. I spread peanut butter on one. I put jelly on the other, put them together and cut it in half. But this other company's APIs and microservices is a little bit more complicated and a little bit more deep. You get the bread, you find out if it's gluten-free, if it's organic certified, you decide whether you want to toast the bread, how much do you toast it? Is that organic peanut butter? Is that non-organic peanut butter? How thick do you want to paste it on? And suddenly people get the idea, right? And so, so you can understand the difference between simple, right? Simply, like simple kind of models and complex models and trying to put them all together, right? You get that kind of conversation. So, so using metaphors, essentially using metaphors, using storytelling, but none of that had anything to do with the technical conversation. So to what degree do you use metaphors in terms of your own 
understanding. I mean, that's I think it's one of those interesting points where I suppose the arguably in the you know, there's a bit of a debate around first principles thinking and so coming about and saying, okay, you're just pulling down things that are elemental pieces. And there can be arguably dangers of metaphors. I mean, you know, there are dangers and values of metaphors. And, you know, in terms of being able to pull out analogies, be able to find useful things, but of course, no metaphor is perfect. And so you start to, you know, they, they can be misleading as well. So to what degree do you, in your own understanding, do you look for or find metaphors in how it is you, you know, see structures to how things are working? Well, the thing is, you have to reason from first principles. That doesn't go away. Everybody knows that if you're really trying to win an argument. It's just that, you know, that's a very logical kind of approach. But to, to capture the emotion of the argument, to capture the imagination and the passion, that's where the analogies come into play. And that's balancing the art and the science, right? The science is first principles. Here's what it is. Here's the logical reason. Here's how we get there. The analogy and the storytelling behind it is the passion and the emotion and, you know, getting people excited about it, having them relate at a human level. I think the best communicators actually do both. So you are listening to the thriving on overload podcast. If you truly want to increase your information productivity, then check out the thriving on overload interactive course. It is designed to significantly enhance your information practices and habits, guiding you through creating your own personal information plan. So you can excel in a world of overload. Go to thrivingonoverload.com slash course to find out more. Now back to the show. So do you structure your day in terms of your information habits or exchange with the, <laughs> okay. well, how you interact here. with information? <laughs> I, I probably spend, I, I get about five hours of sleep. So there's a little natural advantage here. So I need about five hours to function, six hours to be at peak performance and four, I could probably get away for a couple of days, right? Um, but I start my day and I, I literally scan all my input sites, like whether it's my Twitter feeds, whether it's my news sites, whether it's, you know, I just scan information in the morning, right? So that's the first thing I do in the morning is like, see what the heck is going on and at least get a baseline, like look at stock charts, look at, you know, what's happening in different trend lines, right? whatever reports are coming out, right? I'll leave like, you know, business TV on just to, just to have that too in the background, just to get a grounding. So, so I scan the day. And they start do you, that do way. you but, take any notes while you're doing that? No, I don't take any notes. So I'm just scanning for like broad trends just to get a feel. But then, like, you know, if it's really important stuff like work deliverables that have to be get out, like to be done that require time. So some things like you can just do, you can context switch super fast, and that's not an issue. But when you really have to take the time to deeply think, like if you're writing a book, right? You know, you've been through that process multiple times, right? If you're writing a book or if you're trying to take a complex idea, if you're trying to get a work deliverable out, like you got to block time for yourself, right? And for me, that's like blocking a couple hours to actually think, to actually get through something, to actually get work done. That, that's a little bit different. But other than that, then if you're on calls and they're not video calls, you can get a lot of work done. I mean, there's, there's a lot of manual tasks, email checking, things that you can do like multitask. I know people don't believe in multitasking, but actually I, it works for me. The only thing that doesn't work in multitask is when you're stuck on a Zoom call and you have to look at people, right? The video like kills you, right? You're not single-threaded for a while and you're very unproductive. Right. Do you pull, have times when you're pulling together, you know, the synthesis process? Okay, you're doing the scanning, you're making sense of things. So is that all just in the, your blocks, your focus blocks? Is that when you're, you know, distilling and making sense of things? Or are there other times when you're spending time to read an article or a book or, uh, you know, or to 
nut away at a problem? Yeah, I mean, some problems just can't be solved right away, right? They require some depth. They require some, you know, taking back, you know, a little bit of perspective. They require, you know, seeing other things happen and, and they're constantly in the background, right? So, so for those types of deep thinking that you're trying to do, you're trying to build a brand new model, right? I mean, those take, you know, those take months, right? That's not something you would do like in a day or in a week, right? They take months to get to that level of substance, right? But if you're, you know, doing, you know, if you're trying to crank out a consulting deliverable, help a client with like, you know, project, right? Yeah, that you can probably do in a couple of days. So when you're, if it's a long-term thing, do you spend a slice of time on it every day or every little while just to be able to see the way you're thinking about it? Or how do you... Well, in the post-COVID world, yes, because everything is scheduled. Nothing is serendipitous, right? <laughs> you have no free time to yourself. Uh, before, it would be a flight, right? You get on a flight, yeah. right? Sydney to LA, Sydney to New York, Sydney to San Francisco, boom, right? You get on the plane, you eat something, you, you check some emails, you watch a movie, you come back, you think about something. I mean, like that was thinking time. Right, that was personal time. Travel yeah. was amazing, right? Because it gave me my own personal time. I lost all that, just like you, right? You you lose the time to actually bump into things. Some random things might occur. There's, you know, but uh, so so these days it's all forced, right? Like I, I got to block three hours to go think. That's not fun. <laughs> it doesn't work like yeah. that, yeah. right? Yeah. But if I'm traveling and I happen to bump into something, or I happen to be thinking of an idea, I've got my own time, right? Now I can actually do something with it. So, so, but yeah, but I think everybody works differently. But for me, like it's really, you know, that travel time, that transit time was my thinking time. So it's coming back to thinking around, well, what is it that is relevant? Yeah, what's relevant is what not relevant. And so do you, and you, you've, you're very broad ranging in what you cover, you know, and you seem to be getting broader over time as well. So how is it that you, you know, do you set some kind of a frame for what it is that you perceive as, you know, this is relevant to my consulting, to my company, to books that I may be thinking about, or, or this, you know, just the nature of can't keep across everything, this doesn't? How do, how do you set those filters or that frame? I think probably three things that are important. The first one is we focus on the business impact right? It has to have a business impact, right? And so, so whatever I look for, I'm just trying to understand, is that a new business model? Is that technology going to change this? Is that a marketplace uh, move? Is that something that, you know, will change the balance of power in, in an area? So, so I, I always look at the business impact. The second thing that I look for is, is that like a new technology trend? And you got, you know, I mean, there's Uber trends, macro trends, micro trends, right? All the way down. And, and you're trying to gauge, right? You know, if, if a technology will change what happens in the marketplace. Uh, but then the third one's a little bit different. I, I spent a lot of time looking at capital flows and I'm trying to understand where the money is being bet. Like, where are you betting? Like, and, and why I look at capital flows is because it's a good indication of not only psychology, but also people's um, perception of where markets are heading. And so, so the, those three things pretty much drive everything. So business, technology, and capital flows. Right. So anything which relates to that. And, you know, do you have any focus industries or do you tend to think everything fits in the world of business so that all, it all is relevant? I used to look at industries, but the challenge of looking at industries today, and, and as you'll probably know in the way that I've written recently, it's, it's about these data value chains that are convergent. Um, for example, comms, media, entertainment, and telco to me are really the same industry, whether you're selling a video game or selling enterprise software, or selling a movie or music um, or, you know, or phone plan. 
it's all the same to me. And, and I don't say that lightly because it's the interaction between the content, right? Which is those media types, the distribution uh, channels that are actually happening, the um, what's happening from the technology platforms. And then of course the customer networks, that interaction is allowing this digital monetization to occur, whether it's ads or goods or subscriptions or memberships or search, right? They're all working in the same way. And so, so we see data value chains emerging. And so that's why I don't really look at industries in the traditional sense. Uh, retail, um, manufacturing, distribution, we see that convergence already. Uh, hospitality, healthcare, and retail are converging, right? And so you see those kind of things happen. So I start to look at where data value chains are playing a role and that just like you look at capital flows, I want to understand who takes the in, well, actually the the upstream, the downstream implications of that data and what do those insights and how those insights create new monetization models or risk mitigation models. Yes, yeah, absolutely. And yeah, it's a long time we've seen the the convergence of industries, but I mean, in a way that that provides then a frame for the information. If you're saying you're looking for these data flows and particularly the yes. ones which relate yes. across industries, that's where that is a, a signal that is... Yes. relevant and interesting. I mean, you do this all the time. I do this all the time. We're trying to extract signal from the noise, right? And that's been the challenge. Um, the world's gotten so noisy. Uh, you just got to get better at figuring out, you know, which data sources are more valid and which data sources are more trusted. Um, and so there's a little bit of having to do that as well. So so tell me about that. How do you assess the validity of uh, data sources or it's temporal it's it's completely temporal i mean over time like what's the track record of the source what's the track record of that information and insight and you know um has it been tampered has it been altered since you last seen it i mean this is we're dealing in a world of deep fakes we've got to be very careful so so this i mean i think one of the interesting things about signals is is surprising what's surprising do you so do you see things that surprise well i mean we all see things that surprise us <laughs> Uh, but what what do you do when you see something that surprises you? How, what, what what's that signal say? Oh right, that that doesn't fit model. This is this is something which is uh, a counterexample. So what what how do you deal with that, or what do you do? Well, well, there's the logical aspect of it, and then there's the reality. I'm going to take a very controversial example just just to make a point. Uh, might get me in trouble, but let's let's take the issue of you know police deaths of unarmed individuals. In the US at one point in time, there might have been 42 of those in the year 2019, maybe 2020. I think it was 2019. I just want to double check. Right. And yeah. And of those, five of them were African-American, 35 of them were Hispanic or white. Right. Who would have thought that that would trigger like one incident like that would trigger a massive set of riots and, you know, chaos in the United States throughout a summer. Right. With massive amounts of property damage, massive amounts of social unrest all happening at once. Right. Like like that doesn't make any logical sense. Right. So if you were just to look at the numbers, you're like, oh, like people should be more upset about, you know, violence in cities where thousands of people are being killed and thousands of people are not getting their justice and people don't feel safe. They should be angry about that, right? That's the logical conclusion, right? Uh, but then the emotional piece kicks in, right? Like one video can change the way people view things and, you know, become emotionally, you know, use that as the analogy versus your first principles argument, right? And so what I've learned over the last... 24 months is that, 
humans are not very good at making logical, rational decisions in their heads. Um, they don't understand how to assess a proportional response and also assess the level of risk and assess probabilities. Um, they let analogies and emotions and imagery take over their logical minds, right? And if you understand that, right, then you understand the art of actually these trends that are happening because the data is going to say one thing, like who would care about, you know, 40 people who are unarmed and shot versus tens of thousands of people in the cities being killed every day. And that would be more important in an issue. And I think that's an important lesson to be learned. Just like here in, when we're talking about COVID, right, and COVID-19, one would say, you know, I mean, this is crazy, right? I mean, if you look at the numbers and if you look at what's going on, you would think that the rational response would be to give every country the manufacturing capacity to have vaccines and get that done all at once so that there wouldn't be variants, right? Because the numbers say that the variants are operating at a thousand X, right? The vaccine production. And so you'd want to solve that as an emotional issue. But here we are 18 months later, and you got countries like the US where we're wasting vaccines and talking about third boosters and other countries which are barely getting their first set of vaccines. Like that, that's not logical. Right? It doesn't make yeah, any sense, yeah. right? Right. And so so you see these things happen. You're just like, okay, I guess humans aren't very logical. Yes. Well, I mean, well, if, the, if that, yeah, that continues to be a surprise, I suppose. Or well, it's not really that's a surprise never been anymore. a surprise, but you, you get yeah, it, right? Yeah. But you're just like, how can we be this, like, you know? So, so, but would you trust the machine to then make that decision is, is the next logical conversation point. And the answer is like, I don't know. Maybe I still want a human in charge, right? I don't yeah. know, right? Yeah. So, Well, it is also around then being able to say, well, okay, what are the signals? And part of it is saying, okay, well, we can't, analyze this rationally there's no you can't have a logical structure here to this but what are the senses or the structures to be able to assess those well particularly group or social how you say emotional responses which are still very much shaping our world and this goes back to your point right i mean this is really about framing right our ability to actually frame these conversations are are important right And, and give people the context so that they can get to the right decisions so in summary, for anyone who is uh, looking to thrive on uh, massive amounts of uh, information we live in today, what, what is, what's the advice you would uh, give? I think what you have to figure out is, is the purpose of why you want to even get there, right? Like, what are you trying to do with that type of information? There's a lot of noise, right? Like, for example, like, I don't spend a lot of time looking at gaming, right? That's not, I mean, I love it. It's a fun spot, but that's not for me. So like gaming and esports, that's not an area I I typically go deep and cover, right? So you have to figure out what, why you're actually looking at that information and those information sets. And then you also have to figure out, you know, what information is, is useful to you. And it's easy to get overloaded. I mean, it is massively easy to get overloaded if you're not processing very rapidly or if the data is not in a way that allows you to minimize context switching. Fantastic. All right. Well, thanks so much for your time. Right. It's been uh, some really deep insights and what you do. You're obviously uh, right on the edge there of uh, making sense of lots of information. So thanks so much and have a wonderful day. Thanks a lot, Ross. Thanks for having me here. Thank you for listening to the show. If you want more resources to help you thrive in a world of exponential information, go to thrivingonoverload.com, where you can find all podcast episodes, transcripts, show notes, 
excerpts from my book, Thriving on Overload, the Thriving on Overload interactive course, and a trove of other useful content and resources, including a weekly Tips for Thriving newsletter to keep across it all. If you like this episode, please do help us be found by giving us a rating or review and subscribe if you'd like to hear more. This is Ross Dawson. Thank you for listening. Have a wonderful day.